Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. We have got a cast iron assurance and a guarantee from the British government. The particular problems around the Irish border are being used politically to try to frustrate Brexit. Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom. Northern Ireland would form part of our customs territory. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor at the EU Budget Summit in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London Correspondent in Westminster. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, Mr Frost comes to Brussels. Yes, Boris Johnson's Chief Negotiator, David Frost, enlightened an audience of students and think-tankers in a Brussels university on his country's and his own personal journey into Brexit. It may have been designed to deliver some friendly home truths, but the speech triggered a bitter war of words over good faith, bad faith, a Canada trade deal, even the Elgin marbles got a mention. We'll assess what was behind the speech, what it tells us about how far apart the sides are ahead of trade negotiations, and what the big differences still are on the vexed question of the level playing field. And we'll be looking at the Brexit-sized hole in the EU budget, 75 billion euro and counting, and what that will mean for Ireland's net contributions over time. OK, well, Sean, we'll go from the cold atmosphere at the European summit where Tony is to the frosty atmosphere that was in Brussels during the week. First thing I noticed about David Frost's speech was he was talking about his countryman, Edmund Burke, So, Sean, in trying to diplomatically address a European audience, maybe claiming an Irishman as my countryman mightn't have been putting his best foot forward. Perhaps not. A few commentators picked him up on it. Certainly the Irish ones did. Also, I suppose we are in that kind of uh, ambiguous situation uh, with this common travel area that... Uh, in relation to all these new immigration rules that were introduced this week uh, here in the UK. Uh, they don't apply to the Irish for various historical reasons. You can perhaps see why there was a certain uh, confusion there. Or maybe he was just trying to grab somebody who was famous and uh, deny that they were Irish. Edmund Burke, in fairness, I suppose, had described himself in the past as an Englishman. I say this entirely tongue-in-cheek as regards Mr Frost. But anyway, he was over there in Brussels. He was trying to talk about his own very personal journey towards questioning the whole direction of the European project and he said there were very few other people in the UK's diplomatic representation over in Brussels that there was a cabal who met in a back room the odd time to exchange their private opinions about what they felt was going wrong about the European Union, but it wouldn't have been a popular or profitable perspective at his time in the Perm Rep. No, and, and also uh, back in the Foreign Office in London where he'd worked on the EU desk, uh, although he did say a small group of them did have a celebratory drink uh, when the Dutch voted against the EU constitutional um, tre- uh, treaty, um, the one that died the death after both the Dutch and the French Uh, voted against it. Uh, I suppose part of his critique was that over time he came to uh, believe uh, that you couldn't change policies in the European Union and that if you couldn't change policies by voting uh, in the normal way that policies in nation states change because you vote for different governments, then people express their opposition 
by opposing the system. So the system itself becomes the problem. And this is why he described uh, the two revolutions uh, in the European, uh, in Europe, his reflection, uh, his, going back to Edmund Burke and his reflections on the revolution in France. He said, let's reflect on the revolutions in Europe. First of all, there is the EU itself, this new governmental system overlaid on the old system, purportedly a Europe of nation states, but in reality, the paradigm of a new system of transnational collective governments. And then there was the second revolution, which he said is, of course, the reaction to the first. He's saying this problem has grown up. If you feel that you can't change policy or a project is going in a direction that you don't agree with or don't want to go along with, and you can't vote against it and you can't vote against it in national elections and there is no real transnational policy and political authority there that you can change, that the people can change, then the only opposition to the policies is opposition to the system itself. And that's the personal journey that he was on. And also, he says, the journey that uh, his country has gone on over the past 47 years and has led it to leave the European Union, believing that that is in the best interests of the, the, the country. And also having a little bit of a, uh, a pop at some of the uh, European commentators who say that the British have lost their reason and it's all going to be a big disaster for them. He said, no, we haven't lost our reason. We have left precisely because we have reasoned this through and this is the conclusion that we have reached. Tony, Edmund Burke, of course, was no fan of revolutions. He thought once you take the lid off in a revolutionary fashion, all hell breaks loose and it's very hard to get control of things again. How did it go down in Brussels? Yeah, it was a funny reaction in a way, Colin, because I think people did appreciate the fact that he had taken time to set out his own very personal uh, journey, his own uh, personal views. And I think from the UK's point of view, you know, like, the, you know, Michel Barnier and other EU figures have been making speeches in the UK all the time. And they felt that the time was ripe for David Frost to go and make a speech, uh, you know, in the heart of the Citadel and to try and give an opportunity to people outside the normal format of ministers coming over here to, to get some home truths or, or to get some truisms about Brexit and David Frost's own, own position. Interestingly, the university uh, in Brussels he went to, it's, it's the ULB, which is the Université Libre de Bruxelles, which uh, has a European institute in it. And through that European institute went people like Clara Martinez Albarola, who is De Michel Barnier's deputy. Also, uh, Joe Johnson, the prime minister's brother, uh, studied there as well. So this was the kind of uh, thinking behind his, his trip. The trouble is that he was perceived here in Brussels as having a somewhat of a, a gratuitous go with the French when he was using Edmund Burke's disparaging thoughts on the French Revolution and this whole idea that... And he managed what they call in uh, in the post-Christmas sales a twofer. He managed to offend two for one. <laughs> yeah, he, he did. And this is at a time when the French are very much trying to push for a tougher line on the level playing field issue, which we've talked about before. This need, as they would see it, to, to keep the UK from lowering its standards so that they get a competitive advantage, advantage over the the EU and the, the French have been pushing hard for things like what's called dynamic alignment that, you know, over time the UK would have to keep in lockstep with uh, EU regulations. And the French, to, to be frank, have 
you know, been no a little intended. bit more isolated on this, no pun intended, uh, have been uh, isolated on this issue uh, in the, the platforms where this is being discussed in, in the working party of EU officials from member states uh, in co-repair, the, the body that uh, brings together EU ambassadors who, who you know, take the, 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 the harder political decisions. The French have been, uh, you know, under pressure in some ways to try and allow the EU to formally adapt uh, or adopt its its draft negotiating mandate. Uh, now that that really has to be done by next Tuesday's, which so which is effectively the mandate that Michel Barnier and others will bring into the trade negotiations. That has to be approved by by member states on Tuesday. So it's been going through the machinery in Brussels, uh, various formats of ambassadors and, and officials, and the French uh, have been sort of standing out on their own quite a bit on wanting the level playing field issue to be tough. They want they've talked about dynamic alignment for the UK to be following EU regulations over time, and and that then got caught up in David Frost's speech because he he was saying effectively that the EU seemed to be happy enough to negotiate free trade agreements around the world uh, with places like Canada, Japan, South Korea, but not having the same preconditions that they're imposing on the UK on, on the level playing field issue. And then that sparked a kind of war of the slides uh, when the next day Michel Barnier came out and said, actually, Canada is 5,000 miles away. Britain is right there in front of us. The level of trade is about 10 times higher compared to Canada. There's, there's no uh, comparison between the, the two free trade agreements. Then Downing Street, their official Twitter account, published a slide that Michel Barnier had himself put out in 2017 showing that by a process of elimination, because the UK was leaving the customs union and the single market, the only kind of free trade model that was left to them was a Canada free trade model. So Downing Street rather cheekily said, so what's changed, Mr. Barnier? To which the EU replied with another slide of its own showing various relative sizes of different countries around the world which have a free trade agreement with the EU and effectively saying, well, what's changed is the political declaration and the fact that the UK has signed up to what was called a robust set of level playing field provisions. So so this was the kind of weak descending into acrimony, uh, all effectively flowing from that speech in Brussels. Sean, from the point of view of the UK, the Canada deal has been pointed to repeatedly saying, look, all we want is a Canada deal and we want to be treated fairly. We want to get away from this level playing field issue because it's not expected of Canada. It's been pointed out that Canada's level of access for agricultural goods, for example, is not as great as the UK is expecting. So from the UK perspective, what do they want? Are we at a Canada plus or a Canada dry? Or what's the difference? And what are the points that are being made from the UK end of things? Well, in uh, Mr. Frost's speech, he said, in short, we only want what other independent countries have. And uh, flesh that out by saying to think that we might accept EU supervision on these so-called level playing field issues simply fails to see the point of what we're doing. This isn't a simple negotiating position which might move under pressure. This is the point of the whole project. So there you have it. The, bre- the Brexit project uh, is now there in 
opposition or reaction to the EU project and the whole point of that project is to be not supervised by the European Union or under European Union rules. So just uh, to be clear divergence about... Divergence is the name of the game. That is what Mr Frost is saying in this speech. Do you detect, or has it been detected from David Frost's speech, and Tony, if you can come in on this as well, that the UK prizes above everything else the sense of independence and sovereignty and for that it is willing to pay an economic price. We've moved away from sunny uplands being unleashed and the benefits accruing from Brexit. David Frost is recognising that there could be a cost but that's a price worth paying. Well it's not saying that there could be a cost, he's saying there absolutely will be a cost but yes it is a price worth paying. He says even if there's a short run cost it will be overwhelmed rapidly by the huge gains of having your own policy regimes in certain areas. He also goes on about uh, is obviously a one-off cost from the introduction of friction of customs and regulatory borders uh, but I am simply not convinced it's on anything like the scale or with the effects that economic studies suggest. See, he uh, was having a pop at the economic Experts. studies that had been predicting problems for Britain as a result of going down the Brexit route. He says there will be a cost but we will be able to compensate for that cost by having control of our own regulations and uh, he said we are going to have a huge advantage over the EU, the ability to set regulations for new sectors, new ideas, new conditions quicker than the EU can. Well Tony, given that this, at least despite all the acrimony, seems to harden or clarify the British position at the very least, does this contribute in some way towards a condensed timetable for negotiating a clearer deal in that the UK is willing to give up some market access in the interests of greater independence. Unfortunately, quite the reverse, because the whole approach by the EU has been we will give you a, a zero tariff, zero quota free trade agreement like nobody else has. But in return, you have to sign up to the level playing field. If you don't sign up to the level playing field, then it's not going to be a zero tariff uh, deal. There will be zero tariffs in some areas, but in others there will be tariffs. Uh, and that then means you get into this... So it's sector by sector then? Sector by sector, you get trade experts coming in, they go line by line. You know, you stick a tariff on this, then you have a retaliatory tariff on that, and it becomes a classic long drawn out free trade negotiation. I mean, just to get back to what Sean was saying, uh, and, and in terms of the EU's response from this positioning by, by the UK, the EU are saying, look, we, we want a relationship that, that will last for decades, that will be stable and trustworthy. And they've kind of likened this approach by the UK, whereby they say, well, you know, we, we'll sign up to level playing field where it suits us, where it doesn't suit us, we'll take the pain and, you know, we all walk away and everyone's a winner. The EU regards that as something like uh, of, a, of a prenup, uh, you know, whereby a, a soon-to-be-married bachelor says, OK, here's the prenup, we're going to get married, but I'm not really going to spend that much time looking after the kids, but I don't mind paying the price for that in some other way. The EU view is, look, this is just no way to, to have a, a stable, trusting relationship over time. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, the language is shifting on the EU side, and often this debate gets boiled down to, you know, very blunt assertions that the, the UK will be trapped in EU regulations. As Sean said, this defeats the whole purpose of Brexit. The language is shifting and they're talking now about the UK having quote-unquote corresponding standards, you know, not the exact same standards, uh, you know, not 
dynamic alignment forever and a day, but over time... I can't believe it's not dynamic alignment to I take... I can't believe it's not dynamic alignment, exactly. I think the EU is being perhaps more thoughtful on this than the UK is giving them credit. And they have said, you know, privately and on slides that were circulated to member states that they know and they accept that the UK is not going to be a rule taker. And it is going to be about equivalence of outcomes rather than having a strict set of EU regulations with a big EU stamp on it that the UK have to sign up to year on year. I mean, I don't think that's where this is going. But the problem is the UK sees that their obligation or their responsibility, not, not to the European Union or a, a set of classic European approaches to something, they see it more as uh, it, this being a global marketplace where there is competition between different poles of influence or sectors and they can get an advantage where it suits them. And that's all fair in love and war, if you like. The remarks by Brandon Lewis earlier in the week, the new Northern Ireland secretary, saying that there would be no checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland um, coming before the David Frost speech. What's the cumulative effect of all of this? Is it seen as what Downing Street is thinking? It's certainly seen as what Downing Street is thinking, but it does feed into this whole, you know, scrap over level playing field in that the word you hear about Brussels a lot more these days is trust. uh, And the way that the Irish protocol is going to be implemented, the role of the Joint Committee, the extent to which you're going to have checks and controls on the Irish Sea, all of that is now being seen as a test case of trust because the EU believes that the treaty which is now in force, the withdrawal agreement, is clear. The UK will have to have a, a regime of checks and controls on the Irish Sea to enforce effectively the European Union's external uh, single market frontier uh, and to uphold the, the EU's customs rulebook known as the, the Union Customs Code, uh, all 2,000 pages of it. They say, look, this is not something that the Joint Committee, uh, which will be comprised of people from both sides, it's not something that the Joint Committee is going to start renegotiating. All the Joint Committee can do is to decide what goods or categories of goods can get an exemption or a rebate on tariffs. You know, whatever happens, uh, the EU believes the checks and controls have to be there, the systems have to be in place, uh, and you're getting what seems to be a lot of ambivalence from the UK. Privately, the HMRC, the customs arm of the British government, has said to ports that they are not asking them to put stuff in place to expand checks and controls. So so these these things are linked. I mean, you could say, Brandon Lewis said, well, there's not going to be a border in the Irish Sea. I mean, you could say, well, back in the day when Michel Barnier was trying to sell the virtues of the backstop, he said, we're not talking about a border in the Irish Sea, we're just talking about checks that are pragmatic, that are, you know, that can be de-dramatised. So perhaps he was trying to be a bit clever by half uh, in his use of language but overall there is a concern in Brussels that the UK is taking something of a casual approach to this uh, and you know if it is the case that that the EU believes that then the the protocol provides for the European Union to take the the UK to the European Court of Justice through an infringement proceeding and you can and they can also take action through the UK courts because this protocol is directly applicable in UK law. Sean, the other issue that came up during the week is this uh, points-based immigration system modelled loosely but not quite directly on the Australian system of uh, of work. 
What's the situation with it and what's it aimed to achieve? Well, it's aimed to achieve uh, a reduction in the number of uh, people moving into the United Kingdom uh, from anywhere in the world. The Australian system uh, that it's modelled on doesn't have that objective. The Australian system is designed to grow the number of people coming to Australia, but to be selective about uh, who they let in. And the British system Uh, is uh, intended to be selective as well. This is an idea that's been kicking around for a long time. You go back to the uh, days of the Vote Leave campaign uh, before the Brexit referendum. They were talking about a points-based immigration system as well. Um, But they finally got around to publishing some of the details on it. And uh, it's not only will it be uh, a points-based immigration system, but they're also promising a revolution in the operation of the UK border, tightening security and delivering, get this, a better customer experience for those coming to the United Kingdom. So you've got to wonder when they're talking about an outfit called Border Force, what their customer experience is going to be like, uh, but we're told it's going to be uh, much better uh, as a result of what's being uh, intended here. Part of this tightening of the border thing uh, will be uh, including having biometric uh, technology. Uh, If you're an EU citizen, you'll be able to take a selfie of yourself and send it in advance because they want to build up to a system where everybody traveling from any part of the world except Ireland will have to seek uh, advanced permission to travel uh, and do it in an electronic way and uh, phase out the insecurity of of, uh, travel documents. Uh, If you're from Australia, Canada, Japan, New Zealand, the US, Singapore, South Korea or the EU, you'll still be able to use the uh, e-gates when you arrive, but that will be a unilateral measure granted to EU citizens Uh, but they will keep the policy under review. So if the EU, I guess, was to uh, say, no, the Brits can't use e-gates when they go on their holidays to Spain in the summer, uh, then that would be uh, pulled, that right would be pulled uh, potentially in the future. As for the uh, guts of the uh, points-based system, as it suggests, you must get certain points to qualify to become eligible to enter the United Kingdom. It has to be a job uh, over, them. over about yeah, 26 and a half grand. You have to be able to speak English and they have to basically not... It has to be by an approved job sponsor, exactly. Uh, it's so the, the, the onus is going to devolve onto employers uh, to uh, be the ones who go out and get themselves registered in the first instance, do all the paperwork, do the recruitment and make sure that whoever is coming meets the required standards, and uh, that includes the wage standards as well. Also, uh, there's an economic justification that uh, they're uh, promoting as part of this, promising to be a bit revolutionary in the way the British economy is run. Uh, They're saying that part of the aim of this is to end the dependence that the British economy has on low-pay imported labour from the European Union and to drive, explicitly they're saying they want to drive up wage rates in the UK, but also use it as a means for driving up productivity, because they're saying if you as employers can't find uh, workers to do the job, then you need to invest more in your workforce, train them, upskill them, invest more in technologies, uh, particularly leading-edge technologies, and try and get the effects that way that you're currently uh, enjoying by just simply getting in people from Poland and Lithuania and wherever else in the European Union uh, to fill the jobs uh, and run this kind of fairly low-wage, low-skill economy. They are getting quite worried here in Britain about the 
the productivity uh, of the country. And this is, they think, one way that they might go about addressing that. Uh, Tony, our colleague Tommy Gorman and uh, our colleagues, plural, Sinead Hussey and Tommy Gorman, were reporting from around the border area during the week on the difficulties that this is causing for EU citizens who aren't Irish and therefore not entitled to the benefits of the common travel area to be treated the same as UK citizens. So say, for example, a Polish or a Lithuanian worker who is working in a farm or a factory north of the border but living in the south, that their situation remains precarious. I heard somebody on this morning on RTE saying that people working a three-hour day, particularly mothers who like to work a three-hour day in the morning, that they won't hit the benchmark of 26,500. They're not UK citizens and therefore they're in a bit of a limbo. This hasn't been fully thought out in the context of the Irish border again. You know, I think anybody who, who understands the common travel area in detail and the, the particular benefits that it accrues for Irish citizens in the UK and UK citizens in Ireland, it was always going to, to run into conflict with, you know, whatever future post-Brexit regime is put in place for other EU citizens uh, who want to uh, either keep working in the UK or travel to the UK or, or have any kind of benefits in the UK. And I think it is because the Irish question was so intrinsically linked with the divorce and, and you know, those three hugely complex areas, uh, you know, the backstop, citizens' rights and, and the financial settlement, the whole question of the common travel area was dealt with at every stage and was kind of safeguarded through that whole process. And, you know, obviously both... Ireland and the UK had a strong interest in doing that and the EU had a strong interest in not you know upsetting a somewhat you know sensitive delicate arrangement between two sovereign countries that existed long before they joined the European Union um, I mean wh when when Brexit happened one of the first things th that happened uh, fr from an Irish point of view was that a team came over to Brussels from from Dublin to to talk to the European Commission about the common travel area, and the officials in the European Commission said, "Okay, well, show us the um, show us the treaty between Britain and Ireland, which establishes the common travel area." And of course, no treaty exists. This was a a series of ad hoc, informal understandings and arrangements between Britain and Ireland. Nods and winks. Nods and winks. Oh, yeah, very Edmund Burke sounding, that sort of thing. Uh, absolutely. The EU simply wanted, I think, to, to make sure this didn't get, this thread didn't get unpooled, given that they had enough things to worry about with the Irish border. But it's true that it does give Irish people a strange advantage over other EU citizens when the whole essence of, of the European approach is that there not be any discrimination between uh, one EU citizen uh, and another. Um, and that's exactly what the common travel area does now that the UK have proposed this uh, much more tough system. Before um, we move on to the multi-annual financial framework, Tony, I just want to go back to Sean and another diplomat who is causing a stir during the week albeit one who was in operation somewhere in the region of 200 years ago, Lord Elgin, the marbles he took back from Greece when it was under the thumb of the Ottoman Empire, are firmly a Brexit issue now, it seems. Well, in, in the uh, Brexit-loving uh, newspapers of the United Kingdom, it seems they are. And there seems to be some dispute about this, however. Apparently, in the latest draft uh, that was sent off to the perm reps, uh, earlier in the week uh, of the uh, EU's negotiating mandate, 
there is a clause in there that has been inserted at the suggestion of the Greeks, backed by the Italians and one or two others, concerning previously stolen works of art or things of cultural uh, significance, uh, that these should be properly restored to, the, to where they properly belong. Uh, it's reading the, the bland diplomatic language, it seemed fairly straightforward. And the explanation that's been officially proffered on this one is that they want to make sure that uh, Britain stays party to the uh, existing rules, regulations and conventions surrounding artefacts that have been stolen (coughs) and clamping down on the black market that exists, a very substantial black market in antiquities, which all sounds fairly uh, noble and worthy. Uh, However, the British... uh, Newspapers certainly uh, jump to the conclusion that they, it's the Greeks are saying this, so they want the Elgin marbles, or more probably the Parthenon marbles, uh, more correctly termed, uh, which were brought to Britain with the permission of the Ottoman emperor or his uh, regional governors uh, in Greece, which at that time was part of the uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, and have been kept in the British Museum for safekeeping and have uh, been publicly exhibited there since I think 1816. Anyway, one of the the reasons why the uh, British have said we don't want to return them to the Greeks for many years was there was nowhere uh, safe or appropriate uh, to display them or to store them or to conserve them. And for a very long time, that was absolutely true. But since then, the Greeks have built a a really fabulous museum uh, of the Acropolis um, in Athens, really magnificent museum and there are spaces there for these original Elgin marbles as they're known after Lord Elgin. Uh, They have some plaster casts of them which the British Museum sent uh, but they ain't the same thing. Uh, They're not the real deal Uh, so they'd love to have them back and they do have the perfect setting for them now but it's kind of up to the British Museum if they want to give them back. The director of the museum was saying no we don't feel threatened by this thing at all. We understand it's to do with uh, recovering uh, stolen goods, but these are not stolen goods. These are goods, you know, we have the letter from the Sultan, uh, as it were, saying we're, uh, we're allowed to uh, remove these for safekeeping. Right. So they think it's a, a separate track, a separate issue. But of course, that doesn't stop the newspapers from having a pop. You, ha- you have endorsed Dutch Prince Museum. Philip about it, have you, Sean? <laughs> not yet. Okay, Tony, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, j- j- to pick up on what Sean was saying there, um, you know, there was a lot of exasperation around here that, you know, th- this thing got out and before we knew it, it seemed to be like a an, un- a an unimpeachable fact that the Elgin marbles were now part of the Brexit deal uh, and that Greece was insisting on getting them back uh, or they wouldn't, uh, the UK wouldn't have a free trade agreement. I mean, it, it sort of spiralled into that kind of level of conviction. Apparently, the Greek ambassador went back into to the uh, talks room the day after the story came out and, and sarcastically thanked whatever EU officials had kind of leaked this uh, because it, it was extremely embarrassing for the Greek government and they had to go around saying that, no, they weren't uh, using the Elgin marbles to, uh, to, to get a particular free trade agreement uh, arranged. Uh, so that was a lot of irritation here, I think, in Brussels, it's fair to say. Okay. All right. Well, I withdraw my, well, my my misapprehension on that one. On to something that is a well, fact. Well, maybe we should interject something ourselves into these these talks and demand the return of Edmund Burke as an Irish philosopher. To go back to uh, the, 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 the something that is a fact, the shortfall in the European budget as a result of the UK leaving and is now causing waves. What's it all about and what's the Brexit angle on it? Yeah, so every seven years the EU negotiates uh, a new budget cycle that 
uh, you know, obviously lasts over the seven-year period. So it's a huge round of negotiations. We're talking about you know over a trillion euro, uh, but then again, it's one percent of uh, the Europe's economic output. So in relative terms, it's not that much. Uh, but of course, this time around, it, the, the coffers are 75 billion euros short over the over the seven years, and um, you know there also is a big push for the EU to spend more on fighting climate change, on the digital economy, on on terrorism, uh, on uh, dealing with migration. These are all very expensive things, and of course, the European Commission says, well, look, if you look at the the way the European elections panned out last year. This is what voters want. They want the EU to spend money on this kind of stuff. So uh, that that pressure for extra spending and the shortfall in the budget from Brexit has meant that this particular negotiation is very fraught. So and just to draw out, to, you mentioned. So just to draw out the lines there, what are the sides? The Commission would presumably like more money in order to advance the projects they want to advance. Then there are the countries who are net recipients who want to protect the structural funds and the agricultural funds that that, that flow from Europe. There's Ireland in the middle who is happy to become a net contributor uh, but also wants to get something back. And then there are the frugal four who say, steady on now, things have gone far enough. We want to stick to 1% and we'd like people to start... Is it reducing what they get out of the European Union or they want the European Union to get more from what they're being given? To just outline what the what the divisions are and what the various sides are. Well, I suppose the reference points would be that, you know, at the very beginning of this process, the European Commission back in 2018 said, OK, here's our opening gambit on the, the seven-year budget. So we, we reckon it should be something like one14 uh, percent of gross national income then once the member states started to get into the weeds of the discussions on this for for real then under the Finnish presidency that figure was brought down to uh, I think 1.07 percent which which would have then meant uh, you know a significant fall in money going to cohesion money going to agriculture uh, structural funds and so on um, so what's been happening since then is you've got Charles Michel, who's the president of the council, trying to push the figure, um, you know, in one direction or another, trying to move money around uh, so that you can, you know, like the way you receive money, the way you spend the money is very, very complicated. There are all sorts of thresholds and other factors which influence how much you can spend and how flexible uh, it, it can be for you to spend uh, certain amounts of money. So they're, they're, they're trying to move all that around to keep everybody happy, but the overall reality is that there there's less money going around uh, and people are having to put more in and get less back. Um, and that's really uh, the problem for Ireland. You know, Ireland is a net contributor, has been since 2013. And you know, going over the seven-year period, Ireland is going to be contributing more in terms of gross amounts. I think it'll be up to 3.9 billion by 2023. That's their gross contribution. Um, and Leo Varadkar arrived at the summit today, being Friday, saying we're being asked to put more money in, but we're getting less back, and that's not acceptable. So, so that's a common refrain right. that you're getting here. Um, and of course. The, the shortfall of, of the of the UK money is just making that worse. Well, finally, then, just on the on, on that particular point, could 
Europe's difficulty be Britain's opportunity on this? Is there any reason to believe that uh, fractious relations over the multi-annual financial framework could show chinks in the armour on European solidarity when it comes to Brexit, or are they viewed as very much separate issues? I mean, I think they're they're very much separate issues um, because we certainly are back to old-school European scrapping. Um, and, of course, during the Brexit divorce negotiations, the unity and solidarity were pretty much the hallmark. So, so we're back at uh, the way Europe uh, used to do business. Um, I mean, there are ways of looking at this through a Brexit lens, which, of course, we and Brexit Republic will uh, waste no opportunity in doing. But, for example, the, the EU budget is made up of national contributions, but it's also made up of money that comes in by way of tariffs and duties from third countries. Um, and if there is a free trade agreement that is uh, not as harmonious and close as people would like, then there could be tariffs, and then those tariffs from the UK would in turn uh, help fund the EU budget. They are looking at other areas, such as uh, a plastics tax. So for every kilo of unrecycled plastic packaging, a member state would have to send 80 cents into the EU budget as a way of trying to incentivize, incentivize people not to use um, unrecycled packaging. Uh, they're looking at uh, a, car, a border carbon tax. So in the future, if you're selling into the EU and you sell stuff that is made using a big carbon footprint, then you have to pay a tax. All of these kind of things are in the mix. But um, yeah, it's complicated and it's bitter. But Brexit, the, the real link with Brexit is the fact that the EU that the UK is gone right. and that they've taken their money with them. Sean I detect no nostalgia on your part of being on the fringes of a summit where good old Europe, European scrapping is going on so from a Brexit point of view what's ahead of you in the coming week? What's ahead of us is um, more detail we are promised from Mr Frost himself who uh, is apparently going to be setting out uh, in greater detail in writing um, what they expect from the future relationship between the UK and the European Union. So don't have a date for that one yet, uh, waiting for the old call back, but uh, hopefully we'll get to see lots of lovely detail about how uh, exactly uh, they think this relationship is going to work out. And Tony, similarly ahead of us in the next week, will the European Union finally have nailed down its negotiating man mandate uh, in, a, in, a, in all its last detail and polished veneer? Yeah, well, that's the plan, Colm. And uh, yeah, as Sean said, David Frost is going to be bringing out his and they're, they're probably going to bring it out the same, at the same time. And I understand that the UK want their negotiating mandate to look somewhat similar to the EU one in terms of the level of detail and, and scope. Um, but uh, the, the what's called the General Affairs Council will meet here on Tuesday. Um, that, that's the European Affairs Ministers of each member state. And they, they are due to sign off on the negotiating mandate so that those negotiations ca can get underway possibly around the, the 2nd of March. Now, Phil Hogan has... Uh, the, the trade negotiator, our own commissioner, has talked about uh, 10 negotiating rounds before uh, before the summer. Uh, some of the issues would go in parallel. Um, but of course, the big rendezvous is July when the UK has to decide whether or not they may need a transition uh, extension if, if things are not going well. But of course, as we know, uh, Boris Johnson has pledged and even enshrined into law the fact that that won't be on the cards. Um, so. These are the these are the 
landmarks to look out for. But yeah, it'll, it will be an important week next week when the when the EU finally uh, nails down its negotiating mandate, and we'll see exactly what the language in there is on level playing field. Okay, well, from me, Colm O'Mungoin, in the place of Edmund Burke's birth, Dublin. That's it from me. And from me, Sean Whelan, in Edmund Burke's place of work, London. Good luck. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe editor in Brussels, where Edmund Burke may or may not have visited. Thanks for listening.